This is Ader and a Better with Avi Singh and Sajid Khan. What up, Sajid? What up, Avi? Avi Ninder. <laughs> On today's episode, in our opening statement, we talk about the Aaron Hernandez second trial, the verdict, and his death less than one week after the verdict. In our deep dive, we reflect on our own views as public defenders, our own experiences trying to function. We've come up with some tools that we use for keeping our eyes on the prize and taking care of ourselves that we're going to share as like a top five deep dive. And then, of course, at the end of the episode, we will do our things. Let's do it. So, Sajid, I'd ask that you frame this conversation about the Aaron Hernandez case. You just wrote uh, an essay uh, we'll make available in the show notes, but why don't you why don't you tee it up for us? Yeah, I mean, people know of Aaron Hernandez uh, from his story as a star football player. Starting at Florida, he played uh, with Tim Tebow on some pretty prolific teams, ended up getting drafted by the New England Patriots, rose to stardom there as this great tight end who was really versatile, playing with Tom Brady, and then had this fall from grace uh, when he was arrested for and then ultimately convicted of a murder of a friend named Odin Lloyd. And news started to break that Aaron Hernandez was not only potentially involved in that particular murder, but was also involved in another double homicide that took place in a similar time frame. And so as background, Aaron Hernandez went to trial on the Odin Lloyd homicide, was convicted and sentenced to life without the possibility of parole in the state of Massachusetts, and then uh, was charged with and taken to trial for this other double homicide, which involved a drive-by shooting uh, where he was being implicated by the uh, testimony of a friend of his who had become a state's witness or an inform- uh, essentially a cooperating witness for the state who um, put the gun in Aaron Hernandez's hand saying that Aaron Hernandez shot and killed these two people. And the uh, law enforcement located the gun uh, in the course of their search an investigation connected to the Odin Lloyd homicide. Okay. And so, you know, they're investigating Aaron Hernandez and then in the course of doing that, they locate the gun. Yeah, it was a complicated set of circumstances. Even even I, from a, from a distance, almost kind of lost um, the, the kind of timeline of the case. You know, we heard about um, him being convicted of this first homicide involving Mr. Lloyd and getting sentenced. And then all of a sudden, he was back in trial on this, new, on this yeah. other homicide. And I was like, what's happening? You know, um, I didn't really keep up with it in a, in a really close or meaningful way. Um, but then we heard and we all know that Aaron Hernandez was ultimately acquitted of the double homicide, completely found not guilty. Um, and this was after the fact that he had been convicted of this prior homicide. So um, in the sa- same state of Massachusetts, and then shortly after his acquittal, within a few days, Aaron Hernandez was found dead, having committed suicide. When you got saw the news that Aaron Hernandez was acquitted, you know, what were your thoughts when that happened? Yeah, I hadn't I hadn't followed the trial very closely, but it 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 was a kind of a buoy to this public defender spirit in me. Uh, kind of reaffirmed our uh, faith in our system of the presumption of innocence and the pro- and holding the prosecution to the burden of proof of proving their case beyond a reasonable doubt. And so here you had this jury that presumably would have known if if it wasn't already in evidence, but at least known from just from the news and from being in the state of Massachusetts that Aaron Hernandez was this former football player who had a severe fall from grace, who had been convicted of another vicious homicide, but still affording him, this jury still being able to afford him all of these great principles that we hold so dearly and that we try to remind jurors of in our cases. So it was this great vindication. Anytime we hear of an acquittal in our line of work, 
whether it's here in California or across the country in Massachusetts, let alone in a high profile case, it's just it's reaffirming because you you start to feel like Aaron Hernandez is a client. So this is real crescendo of emotion um, honoring that result. So you have a person who's been convicted of a homicide involving a firearm. There's evidence collected against him in the course of that investigation, and now he's being prosecuted based on the word of somebody who's not reliable for reasons X, Y, or Z. Right. And when you hear that the presumption held, uh, the presumption of innocence, or you hear that the burden of proof was uh, applied. Right, and not met. and, And not met. And it's hard to assess. I mean... The burden of proof is applied in cases where people are convicted of crimes, right? It's just that the jury has concluded that the burden's been satisfied. But it's hard to assess that it, it's held, uh, except in those times when it holds, right? Right. So when you're when you're working as a public defender, when I'm working, I just speak for myself, working as a public defender and seeing that a jury is able to conclude that two things are true in a criminal court where the stakes are as high as they could be. Two things being true is this person has been convicted of a murder, but there isn't enough proof that he committed these crimes. Right. If, if that's not possible, this work becomes impossible. And so when that happens, it makes you think, okay, everything we're doing to prepare our defenses and to select our juries and to present evidence and to cross-examine witnesses and to close and to structure instructions perfectly so that the jury can do its job, that it's possible that that can happen. It means something. It means something. It means that's, something, yeah, like yeah, that, that we, the... we have a shot, you know, like that, 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 that a jury is listening and that they're hearing us and that they put it into action in the jury room. And that's what we ask them to do when we close and we do our closing arguments. We say, you got to take these principles and adopt them and put them into action and when, you know, when they deliberate. And so it was affirming that this jury did that for Aaron Hernandez. So in this framework, you know, we, we hear about this kind of this amazing result for Aaron Hernandez and his defense team and, and, and how it kind of buoys the public defender or the defense spirit. Um, and then and kind of reaffirms our hope in our system. And then within a few days, literally news breaks on, on my iPhone and, you know, across the ticker on ESPN, Aaron Hernandez found dead in his in his jail cell. And so like the the roller coaster of emotion is it's hard to describe, but I'm going to try to describe it here. I mean, I took Aaron Hernandez's death very personally like it it hurt me in a place in my body viscerally that I didn't even know I had you texted me like I'm having trouble making you know like I'm really struggling with yeah this it, thing. it like, hurt it hurt me and it and I was trying to process why I mean I had never met never met the man I haven't sat, sat next to him I you follow, didn't follow you follow him I've, no more than any other player. I followed the trial relatively from a from a from a relative distance a little yeah. bit um, but as a football person you're not like you were like, I liked the way he ran his routes and yeah. I you know, yeah. he made some big plays on third down and he used to come out of the backfield sometimes. And so I remember watching him at Florida and at, at in New England. But so I started to try to un, uh, process why I had such a visceral reaction to his death. And there was and this is what I ultimately wrote about in this essay or blog post that, that um, I'm grateful has gotten some attention is that. I started to realize that when I saw Aaron Hernandez, I saw my clients, or our clients. Um, and I started to think of what it would be like to be Aaron Hernandez's lawyers, to be sitting with him in a, in a courtroom for, let's say, six weeks during a trial, you know, to be touching his hand, to be pouring him a glass of water, to be whispering in his ear, to be writing notes back and forth, 
to be talking to him in the holding cell between sessions, um, to be standing with him or sitting with him during the reading of the verdict, to hug in that moment of joy, you know, when the verdict is read, all these really intimate moments that we experience with our clients. Um, so I, I was putting myself in that position of, the, of his attorneys experiencing those things, that closeness with Aaron Hernandez, and then within a few days, him being gone. And so I was thinking of what it would be like if it was one of my clients that I've grown to be really close to through jailhouse interviews and visits and through the courtroom process. All of a sudden, that room that I sit with them in is empty and the seat next to me is empty. And it re- I, that's why I had such a visceral reaction because Aaron Hernandez was like my clients and my clients were like him. Um, that, you know, and you see footage of the trial and usually the footage from inside the courtroom was just like a camera on Aaron Hernandez kind of sitting and kind of looking around the room. Right. You know, which is what happens when you're in a trial. You have your client sitting right. and looking around the room, just like right. anybody else would be in a room where nothing really is happening or going on. And we are acutely familiar uh, with those moments, yeah. right, where you're going back and you, you get these bonds with with your client because in your in a trial you're in this you're in this fight and you're you know kind of shuffled into the back to a holding cell where you're separated with some glass or you get to be not separated with glass and you might talk about what the strategy is for the next three hours right you know that or the next three hours of our day this is what's going to be happening yeah this is what my approach is going to be here do you have any questions you might give a fist bump or you might yeah. you know you might just uh, get a note from a client that that is like really insightful or you know shows for example if they're liter- if their handwriting it, it reveals something about them mm-hmm. it's not what you would expect yeah you you get this very tight bond by being in this in the as you as you've we've ca- talked about it before is in the arena right when you're in it right you're in it with somebody yeah and i'm visualizing the trial that you and i did with our uh, respective clients together we had a co-defendant trial and I'm also visualizing these moments where I remember seeing you tie your client's tie, you know, like pouring him, a, like I said, pouring him a glass of water, whispering in his ear, adjusting his collar, you know, these little moments in time that are so that we kind of gloss over. But then when you think about uh, our interactions with the clients, it's these beautiful moments of intimacy that we only share with our clients. Um, and so that's one of the reasons that this Aaron Hernandez suicide shook me. The other reason is uh, related to our clients is because we get to know our clients in a really meaningful way. We generally come to know that our clients, especially those that are, are often even those that are accused of the most serious crimes, have a story. They were all kids once. There was something likely that happened to them in their experience that shifted them from innocent child to a life of alleged criminality, whether it be the loss of a parent or early introduction to drugs and alcohol, exposure to domestic violence, uh, some sort of trauma oftentimes that our clients suffer. And we learn about these traumas in, from, our, from our clients. And it's part of our job to, to learn them and to investigate them. Oftentimes we end up learning more about our clients than they, they even know themselves in terms of their backgrounds. And in terms of Aaron Hernandez, I knew, so when we talk about what I uh, knew about him and what I didn't know about him, I knew that he himself had been the victim, not the victim, but a sufferer of trauma. His dad had died when he was 16 years old. And everyone that knew and knows Aaron Hernandez says that that moment in time when he was 16 
uh, and his dad unexpectedly died was a major point uh, or major um, transformation point for him that he was never the same that he started to slip down a path of drugs and kind of bad company and and acting out in a way that he had never acted out before um, and so even though he continued to play football it was this new person and so when we look at Aaron Hernandez so many people saw him as this football player who threw it all away and was selfish and it was a monster and and chose this life of violence well and he's on, on the exterior physically strong yeah large right? large strong, fast tattooed we it can sometimes be difficult you know you have to attribute uh, it's difficult to fit somebody who appears that way to us sometimes into that narrative mm-hmm. of a person who lost a family member and one thing that you wrote about uh, was the introduction of a new member right uh, which was a person who uh, wound up being involved in a really horrific domestic violence incident with Aaron Hernandez's mom. Yeah, mom married as soon as, essentially very shortly after Aaron Hernandez's um, father's death. Mom re, uh, remarried and married a, another man who was a kind of a controversial figure in the family already. Brought him into their home, the family home, as Aaron Hernandez was a high school teenager. And then a few years later, this man was convicted of domestic violence against the mom for slashing her in the face. And so this kind of this cycle of trauma that we often see uh, experienced by our clients. And so when other when the outside world sees our clients, like you said, as these brutish kind of chiseled men uh, who are making these these violent choices, we have gotten close enough to our clients to know that there's so much more that lays beneath. There's a story of transformation that has led our clients from innocent child again to where they are in, 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 in meeting with us in the jail facility or being charged with the homicide or some serious crime. And so uh, it was this moment for me to really reflect on my clients and to remind, and I, to remind myself and the, in the community that Aaron Hernandez was more and is more than his worst moment and that he's more than a convicted murderer that he has this story, just like our clients have have a story. And I, I'm grateful for the response that my piece uh, has gotten because I, um, it's been amazing. I've There's like pretty random people that aren't connected to the law that have reached out to me and said, thank you for kind of reminding us of our shared humanity. I'm paraphrasing, but that's how um, people are feeling connected to Aaron Hernandez, even though he is this convicted murderer football player that they would never have felt any connection to otherwise but when you peel the layers back we are all kind of connected as human beings because we were all kids once there's there's a place for uh compassion and empathy in this story Mm -hmm. right and that's and and one thing that i i thought was that you walked the fine line about was understanding without justifying or excusing right and and i think that's uh, i feel like that should be a refrain or a kind of like it's important to understand and try to get close to something. It doesn't mean it was the right thing. It doesn't mean it was a good thing, you know, or the just thing. Uh, you know, there was a severe harm. Uh, you know, even though he was acquitted, two, pe- you know, two people were murdered in the streets of Boston. Odin Lloyd was killed, and Aaron Hernandez was convicted for that. Right. Uh, and there's just so much trauma and so much heartache. Yeah. Just understanding some part of Aaron Hernandez's background doesn't take away from any of that. Yeah. You know, it doesn't change the moral balance of the universe, whatever yeah. that is. It's just about 
you know, a call for understanding for its own sake. Right. And, uh, you know, just as part of, you know, being humans, I guess. Yeah, understanding and not justifying is what I referenced. Also, uh, looking at context rather than just the conduct. Um, that's something that I pulled from our uh, colleague, Charlie Hendrickson, at one of our recent trainings. Uh, he said something like that about um, providing context to our clients' behaviors um, as opposed to just focusing on their conduct. Um, and when you look at Aaron Hernandez's context, you see these layers that are often lost uh, when we just kind of minimize him to his worst moments or to his worst behaviors in the same way uh, that context is often lost on the greater community when they look at our clients and what our clients have done when they've you know when they're actually guilty of what they're accused of um, we don't take a moment to to get close to understand context and how that person got there I, I wanted to mention just two things about the trial uh, that uh, the trial itself that I, I thought just were interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first is Aaron Hernandez's tattoos. Yeah, that was a crazy part. Of, that's what drew my attention to the case, actually. We, we deal with this a lot um, where uh, tattoos that our clients have are used as evidence about for something about them. For example, if a person has a tattoo and the uh, victim is saying the person who robbed me didn't have a tattoo, then the tattoo is important. Yeah, really right? significant. In a case where a person's accused of being a member of a criminal street gang and committing the crime for the gang, uh, the symbols that they have on them can be some evidence of membership or that they're connected. And we often are in the position of pushing against certain interpretations like that this person has a bird on him that means that he's a part of a larger prison gang and that, or, uh, that his car theft was, you know, to advance, you know, the interests of the prison or whatever. The Sharks logo. The Sharks uh, logo in the city of San Jose. Sharks logo, the, the, for, the area code, 408. 408 you know, right, right. And, and we, uh, or lyrics or whatever, whatever images people have. And, and the stance we often take is uh, people get tattoos for all kinds of reasons. And there's all kinds of interpretations. And if you have local pride or whatever, if you like the sharks, right? Uh, you know, you could like the sharks and be Latino. I asked, you know, I, asked a gang, I asked a gang expert that once in a in a preliminary hearing. I said, "So, uh, you know, the San Jose Sharks play in San Jose, correct?" He said, "Yes." Um, and there are many Sharks fans, correct? Yes. And some of those Sharks fans get tattoos to show their fandom yes <laughs> so not every person who has a sharks tattoo is a gang member yes and it was just a, this funny exchange and it was so rudimentary but it was like something that i had to do to just debunk this idea that this gang expert was telling us that anyone or that because my client had a sharks tattoo that he was a gang associate there was a rainy game there's like a really you know there's a storm going on in seattle and it was a game where the Seahawks were losing. They, they weren't doing well. And, and I was watching it. And this guy had a one and a two on his forearms for like the 12th man. Ah. So he had these numbers. And these numbers had a kind of contextual significance. And he was like really mopey. He was really sad. And I remember just thinking, oh, man, that guy, he came to this game. Yeah. He put the tattoo on his arms. <laughs> he's part of the 12th man. And now it's raining on him. And he's just having an awful day. Yeah. But the, so the tattoos in Aaron Hernandez's case, they, they were, I mean, circumstantially appeared to, he obtained the tattoos after the homicide or after the two men were killed mm-hmm. uh, and after Odin Lloyd was killed. So it's like in the passage of time, it was after that on a timeline. They included a firearm with smoke, 
some and some like, language. Some spent shell, like a, like a, a bullet chambers that were five were empty. One was still in the in the chamber. You know, essentially to to signify that five shots had been fired. Um, I, th- I believe that was it. And then there was uh, some language that if he looked in the mirror, it was on his neck. That if he looked in the mirror, um, like in reverse, it would it says God forgives. Um, so like any time that he would look in the mirror, he'd see this tattoo that said God forgives. Yeah. Uh, in association with this with this gun and these bullets and things like that. So they were there was a legal uh, battle of what the, this tattoo meant and whether essentially it was an admission of guilt on his part for having committed this double homicide. And they were and the jury was allowed to consider it. Yeah. They I were mean, allowed it seems, to consider it. It seems to be pretty probative. I mean, I, I, I mean, obviously, we as defense attorneys would try to keep it out. But in light of the timing of obtaining the tattoos, right? Like if it, if he wrote something down in a journal, right? If he wrote something down in a journal, and they found that journal, and the journal said, God forgives. And then it had drawings of a gun with uh, one bullet left in the chamber. Right. And like the time and timestamps. Yeah. Uh, then I don't think that there would be a problem with the jury considering that. Right. As it's circumstantial evidence and whatever inferences they can raise from it. So the fact that it's on his body, uh, I don't think changes the analysis. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, but it's just there's something about tattoos that's kind of like every tattoo means something different. I, I've yeah. had I've had clients, many, many clients, for some reason, right across their stomachs, baby, I'm for real. Baby, I'm for real? I don't know why that is. But you that's more than one more client? More than one client has said, baby, I'm for real. What have you I, I learned that to mean? I, I don't. I, I, it's never, it's never <laughs> been important. It's never been the, the critical piece of evidence of the case. But, but it's like, I don't know. It, you know, with tattoos, there's some, you know, significance to individuals yeah. that... There's some individual meaning right. that people have when they put it on, but yeah. I, I think that ultimately it's fine if the jury thinks about it, but then the defense and the prosecution can argue about what it means. Yeah. You have you any know? incriminating tattoos? Do I have any? Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Any admissions of guilt on your no. on your torso or I your have back? A, I have a, my Westlaw account. After I wrote a really good motion, I put Westlaw, you know, on my on my lower back. Um, so. Uh, the, the, I, I'm, 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 I have a, my Lexus Nexus tattoo. Oh, they are old I'm school. Rival from from law school. <laughs> I'm rivaling yeah, your we, Westlaw. We're from we're from Google Scholar. We're from, we're from different cliques, yeah. So the uh, so uh, the other aspect of that uh, of the trial that I thought was was actually really fascinating was 15 people show up as jurors in the trial. You mean 15 jurors were selected? 15 jurors selected. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So 15 people are sitting throughout the trial listening. Now, in uh, California, in Massachusetts, they have alternates. So an alternate juror is somebody who doesn't actually go into the, to the jury deliberation room. But instead, uh, they sit and they hear the evidence just like any other juror. And if they're needed, you know, if a juror is sick or if, uh, you know, there's a car accident or something unforeseen, then the alternates are called into action. So in California, in our trials, in every one of our trials that I'm aware of, uh, the alternate knows that they're an alternate during the course of the trial. Mm-hmm. You select your jury, and then you select your alternates. And what was interesting is in Massachusetts, there's 15 people, there's gonna be three alternates, but nobody knows who's gonna be the alternate during the trial. From a policy standpoint, that makes sense. 
because you don't have anyone not kind of fully engaged because of their status as an alternate. Yeah, you don't. You know, an alternate says they know they're not likely to get pulled into the deliberation room. They kind of check out. They're going through the motions. I'm just an alternate. I don't have to get keyed into Especially this. Especially if you're alternate number three. Yeah, you know, down on the totem pole. It could be subconscious. It could be conscious. Right. So they're all placed in this veil of ignorance, basically, where you don't know. Now, the other thing that was interesting is the judge selects the foreperson, which I think is nuts. I yeah. think it's it's totally wacky. And he bases his decision based on his observations of who he thinks is checked in and who he thinks is checked out. You mean like paying attention? Like if somebody's leaning forward in their seat and if they're scribbling down a bunch of notes, no matter what those notes say, because he doesn't know, he decides, I'm choosing you as the foreperson. Yeah, that seems pretty ridiculous and pretty um, a, a, an overstepping of kind of judicial bounds in, in, in the sense of getting into the province of the jury you know it, like and, it's totally bogus yeah i mean it's like i've had jurors poker face me the whole time <laughs> kind of look away seem checked out and wind up being a very engaged active juror right because you just can't tell why don't we take a quick break and when we're back we will do our deep dive on how we try to function all set Okay, so we're back. Uh, in this week's deep dive, Saj and I are going to talk about the ways uh, that we, the tools that we use or our methods for trying to function uh, in light of uh, some of the challenges that are inherent in public defense. Uh, we hope that this conversation is useful for people who are public defenders, uh, but for people who aren't. Uh, you know, it's, it's, there are lots of things about the work, a lot of kind of dangers about the work that can lead to what some people call burnout or kind of overstress uh, that are inherent to public defense, but not only or not exclusive to public defense. So we thought we would talk about this today because it dovetailed well with the Aaron Hernandez subject mm-hmm. about putting everything that you have into a case and then just the traumas that are involved inherent in the case, the pressures of the jury. So why don't we, I mean, you know, yeah, why don't we so state the problem? I think, I think the, the what we wanted to talk about was our means and methods of self-care in order to sustain in this type of work, recognizing that this work is taxing in a number of ways. It's taxing spiritually, emotionally, physically. So recognizing that uh, what we do as individually to um, be able to sustain in this work and do it for the long haul. And like you said, it's not limited to public defenders in terms of, I think, these self-care means or these tips, because I think others that work in professions like ours, where they are dealing with other human beings and having to get close with other human beings, um, and and where there's um, exposed to the tragedy and trauma of other human beings, um, that's it, it becomes very heavy. Um, and so you think of teachers, you think of therapists, social workers, people that are in those capacities. It's inevitable that there will be a, a, a toll taken on, on one's soul and uh, that there's just this inevitable possibility of burnout unless there are appropriate means and mechanisms to address it. And we wanted to talk about this for a couple reasons. You know, if a lot of people show up at public defender offices as mission type people. Like they are seeking, they want to use their legal training or their professional experience. They want to put it to work in order to vindicate certain values, whether it's 
uh, providing dignity for people accused of crimes, whether it's making good on constitutional promises or the values that are uh, that are basic, you know, constitutional basics. There's things that bring us here, and then we invest a lot of time and energy into developing our craft. But if you aren't connected in to how a, the huge stresses of the work can be bearing on you, yeah, you could wind up flaming out, right? Not being able to do the thing that you want to do. You could wind up not in the best state to do this really important work. Right. You could wind up. It, it could be actually take a physical toll you know you could wind up being so stressed that it actually harms you physically or you wind up uh, not engaging in the sort of protection that you want you know that is good for us so and then, so it we impact, thought it's and then impacting yeah. our families and our, our your personal lives and, and your interactions with your loved ones whether they be your spouses your kids your parents um, and the impact that the stressors of this job has on those relationships outside of the courthouse and outside of the workplace and you know in terms of phrasing the not the problem per se, but one of the issues here is it dovetails from our conversation about Aaron Hernandez, about one of the stressors of this job or one of the significant kind of um, baggages of this job is the closeness that we develop with our clients. Like it, you, you, you express it to me in a text that, uh, you know, Brian Stevenson talks about getting close. And then you said to me, getting clo- close is the secret ingredient of this work. And it's so true. I mean, you can't do this work unless you get close, unless you get close to your clients, unless you get close to their lives, you really get to know them, get to know their backgrounds, get to know their cases. Um, but when you get that close, it um, it's this a vulnerability where you've kind of stepped over um, this, um, this kind of caution line. And now you've uh, kind of poured yourself into this relationship. And and then you feel invested in the outcome in a, in a different way than just being, you know, maybe a financial advisor or maybe, you know, in some other uh, aspect of our lives. And so when the jury tells you that your client's guilty despite your best efforts or when the judge sentences your client to some lengthy term despite your best efforts, that closeness actually ends up being a pretty heavy burden. You, know, you wind up standing, you know, you're attempting to empathize and then you're experiencing what your client's going through very, very acutely, or, or you get, you convince yourself that this case, this person should not go to prison for over, you know, for 10 years. Right. Now, and I'm going to do everything I can to prevent that from happening, but I don't have control over yeah, the outcome. There, there is so much about this job that we don't have control over. We don't control what a jury verdict is going to be. We don't control you know, if left in the hands of a judge, what their sentence is going to be. We don't control what the evidence is. Yeah, we don't control the cases we get. We don't get to control the clients that come uh, through our, you know, that whose files end up on our desk or who we end up meeting in a courthouse on, a, on the arraignment. Yeah, we're not picking our clients. No. And we stand to represent whoever, whoever. Right. And in, in terms of the, the, you talked about prison time. Another layer of this is that we operate in this system that is so incarceration centric. And so we were talking about life sentences earlier. And when we get close to our clients, we see the beauty in them. We see their humanity. We often see their hope in redemption. And but then we're operating in a system that oftentimes muzzles that hope in for for redemption, or essentially um, precludes it from even existing. Especially when you're talking about life sentences or life um, uh, sex registration or something like that. These kind of life these things that get imposed for life, and so. Uh, this kind of battle between seeing the beauty and the humanity in our clients, but then being in a system that often will 
belittle our clients down to their worst acts in time. Um, and so again, like these layers of closeness and then also experiencing and seeing our clients' traumas. It's what are they, what are they, I, I'm not sure exactly what it's called by, but trauma by association for lack of a better term. I mean, we aren't necessarily experiencing the trauma ourselves, but we're learning about our clients being abused and sexually abused as children or being the products of broken homes or having um, been having a single parent or living or being homeless or being drug addicted and, and any number of layers of trauma that our clients have endured. So hearing those things and then the trauma too of, our, of what our clients are accused of, like in a homicide case or a sexual assault case, assuming that they assuming that they are uh, it's true what they've allegedly done or even assuming it's not true right. but going through all the due diligence to right. establish it like medical examiner reports right uh, photographs lengthy of, of, interviews or autopsy reports yeah. uh, you know uh, or photographs of an abused child or uh, a domestic violence victim or an alleged victim um, bruising and cuts and injuries and death you know like it's just this like accumulation of a variety of different things that are coming from all angles. We may feel like we have the, the thick skin to, to navigate it, but inevitably those little daggers are poking holes in us. And, and what we have to do is attempt to like fill those holes in appropriate, healthy ways, because um, otherwise we'll kind of just bleed out. Uh, and, and, you know, we might resort to things that are harmful to clients. Like you might wind up just imposing a, like a one a, a cookie cutter approach to right. representation. Right. Or an uh, un, un, unempathetic approach. And, or, and, you or know, subconsciously, yeah. you know, um, right. like a or a I've seen this case. I know what I need to know. Right. right without and, actually without actually digging. And then not getting close. Yeah. Like almost a fear of that intimacy because you know what it, that intimacy involves. It's painful. It's painful yeah. to, to invest of ourselves that way um, and to become kind of detached uh, and to be a public defender that's detached. But that's probably the one of the most dangerous types of public defenders is to be a, is a completely kind of emotionally detached public defender from your client and from, from the case. It, it, it's a, to- a completely understandable state that you could uh, right. wind up in. So, so why don't, yeah, yeah, I think we've, we define the problem and, and it is kind of, this is kind of extreme, right? Because there's a repetitive nature. There's a lot of awful things that we're dealing with that our clients experience, that our clients are accused of, that people experience in the community. There's a lack of control. There's just all these factors that kind of cluster yeah. in a way that can be, that that can have harmful consequences if we don't deal with them. Yeah, the repetitive thing is interesting because you're right. It's not like we have one client and then we're once we're done with that client, we can be like, all right, you know, career's done. The movie's over. It's the like credits we, roll. we have multiple clients at once and then when one client resolves or a case gets dismissed or gets sentenced, it's very quickly filled. That, that space is filled by another file, another human being, another story, another set of alleged victims. Um, if not two files or three files, and then it just keeps coming at you. Um, and, it, and so being able to slow down and take on some of these tips that maybe we're about to share and, um, and, and, um, and so that we can sustain in this work. That- and we, we actually got a, a question. So part of the conversation was we got a, a, a question. Challenge. Yeah, or a, we received our first challenge. If you ever want to challenge us, you want to come at us? You want to step to us? Come after me. You want to, yeah, we're grown. You want to come at us? 
Just email us at aderandabetter at gmail.com, and yeah. we'll, we'll try to answer. We're very responsive. This is actually a really supportive person to me in my writing um, career and, and uh, in part of our Ader nation. His name is Jeff Schur. He's a public defender in Kentucky. And um, I had written a post uh, called My Public Defenderness about um, how much public defense has come to mean to me. And uh, Mr. Schur sent us an email saying he had a challenge for us and he wanted us to talk about uh, on our podcast about how spending time um, like watching a Warriors game, he referenced watching a Warriors game, is consistent and necessary with being a public defender, essentially alluding to the, the need of, being, of, of self-care um, in, this, in this line of work. So uh, let's do it. So we're going to do another top, top, top five countdown. Is that right? That's yeah, we're going to do it. We're going to do it as a, as a top five. Uh, so that there's some restrictions or you know some parameters. Uh, so I um, wh- why don't I kick it off? Yeah. Let's and do it. Uh, uh, mine aren't in any uh, particular order, uh, but the first one for me is about understanding or having like a very clear idea of what my role is in the process. And you know the the problem that we're talking about is you know if you start to burn out, could it hurt your ability to get close to your clients? And so separate from getting close, what I try to do is spend time with my clients. Mm. Uh, so I think one of our, our colleagues has said something like, you know, live in the jail. And, you know, you can spend all this time reading files and reading, going through photographs and preparing your line of attack. But it really does start with the client and getting to know that person by just spending time with them. Yeah. You know, there's records requests. There's, you know, subpoenaing school records. There's all kinds of stuff that happens. But just spending time with them and the way I conceptualize my role is helping them identify their goals and empowering them to make some decision yeah and and that's my backstop mm-hmm. so I have a clear idea of what I'm there to do and there's lots of bad things that are happening there's lots of tough decisions they have to make and and I have to and I'm there to talk to them about why those decisions are tough yeah but I'm going to lay out a number of options and we're going to talk about goals and then I'm going to be executing for them. And I, I'm going to have some credibility as I talk to them. And I'm going to have some guidance for myself about our conversation because I'm just going to be spending time with them. Yeah. Because the farther you get away you know, from just representing the client, I think the harder all of this gets. So it's, it's basically I'm saying I stay close by staying close. Like I, I just spend time yeah. with my clients. And, so, and it could be 10 minutes. Right. So what I'm hearing from you is that it, it kind of gives you this framework. Like it gives you this kind of, like you said, a backstop or a kind of a post from where you're you're starting from. Um, you know, it's it's the client, client centered. You're gonna get close to them. You're gonna kind of harken back to that to the fact that it's about them. When times get difficult, like you're gonna kind of resort back to this, to that there's this being that you're with and that that you're gonna be with through the whole process. And I'm gonna respect them as they make a choice. Yeah. You know, and they're gonna choose. So. You know, a lot of a lot of people, I think, can get torn up by the plea negotiation process. Mm-hmm. You know, because in one article that we talked about in preparation for this, the Charles Ogletree talked about the justifications or the sustaining motivations of public defenders, and he talked about heroism, which means fighting for clients in trial. Mm-hmm. And that can be, you know, being in the fight can be really energizing, but that's not often what we're doing. You right. know, nine out of ten times we're not doing that. Yeah. Uh, we're finding a resolution that advances our clients' interests as the, our clients define them. Yeah. So participating with them with that framework, 
allows me to work in, I think, a productive way, but but reflecting on my role. So I'm not I'm not taking on the burden of you have to do this or you have to do that. Yeah. Right. I, I I'm I, it's kind of the way I define the work eliminates some of the stresses inherent mm-hmm. in this or that can not inherent but that are correlated significantly with this work. I think what I'm hearing from you is empowering the client, like yeah. essentially uh, kind of shifting the the weight, not necessarily onto them, but empowering them in a in a positive, meaningful way. And the only way you can do so is by getting close and establishing and building their trust, and so and also making sure that they're informed. That way, when the moments of truth come and they have to make these hard decisions, they will feel supported. They will feel affirmed. They will feel educated um, through this process that you've been there with them. I mean, I I would find it personally unacceptable if I ever said something like, "You have to do this or you have to do that." Right. Especially if I didn't know the person. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. uh, you know, I mean, if you get to know the person, then you get to know what their goals are. Right. It's a much different thing saying, given what your goals are, this makes sense or that makes sense. Yeah. But if you show up and say, this is how it's going to be. Right. You know, that's that's not why I signed the You know, that's not why I'm here. Yeah. So um, just having a clear idea of what my role is and, and how to help. So. Cool. What do you got? These are not in any sequential order. Um, and I was initially going to say to celebrate the victories. Um, actually, I'll still stick with that. I'll stick with that. So this is one of them, one of them is to always to slow down and to pause and celebrate the victories, especially the small ones. Um, you know, in our line of work, it's, uh, we are, um, we lose a lot, you know, our jury, juries find our clients guilty. Um, sometimes we'll make a pitch to the DA uh, that will fall on deaf ears and we'll, we won't get the offer that we wanted. A judge might sentence our clients to something more than we had hoped or anticipated. And so there's these daggers to the soul that we experience. On the flip side of that, we do have these little victories. And those little victories could be winning a suppression motion. It could be getting a great, uh, getting a exciting plea negotiation for a client. It could obviously be a dismissal or a trial victory, but I'm talking about these little victories. Getting a person out of jail. Right, winning a bail motion, winning a, um, you know, getting a client out on pretrial release, getting a client diversion in juvenile court. You know, these little small victories and taking the moment, uh, taking a moment to, uh, to savor and to celebrate them, whether with, with the client or with your colleagues or with your family. You know, I just think that there's kind of, you just need that kind of spiritual buoy uh, to kind of keep us going. And the way I celebrate is with bad food just for as a fyi so usually my first trip if i go and if i win something is to the mcdonald's right here on coleman i go to that drive-thru i get i get a cold coke get some fries a fish fillet maybe an ice cream cone maybe an apple pie or all of those things together and like it's just this it's like this uh and it's not, it's not something i would eat regularly but i celebrate like it's this special occasion mm-hmm. meal yeah. that i treat myself to um just to kind of savor those moments and and it's it's like a little prize for yourself and there's nothing wrong with that and i think we should be doing it more often than just when we win a trial it could be for these these smaller more subtle moments in our practice so mine's kind of connected my second one which is positive self-talk okay so a lot of times when we're in this when we're in this work you as some people are motivated by saying well you know this is a bad case or you know uh it's a loser you know oh it's there's nothing to do or oh you know they want to prepare themselves so that they're not let down Mm mm-hmm 
by this process that lets us down. Yeah. Right. The process lets us down over and over again. And you don't want to be, oh, well, you know, this is going to be an impossible case. or This is going to be a tough case. My, my thoughts usually are connected to like, what is my, what's my path to victory, mm-hmm. whatever that is. And how am I going to accomplish it? And I am feeling good <laughs> kind of consciously, right? If I, I avoid, as I talk about my cases as, as kind of a, I consciously try to avoid getting down on myself. Mm-hmm. You know, now you can sub- unconsciously, subconsciously get down on yourself, or you know, sometimes the case can get down on you. But I, I am a bit, I'm a personal supporter of, we're winning, <laughs> we're up, mm-hmm. right? The small victories maybe are just the things that I'm focused on, but I am, I am uh, speaking positively, you know, which I'm in control of yeah. when I'm thinking about my case. Right. I am thinking positively. Right. So if somebody asks me, how's it going? I think about how it's going and I think about the positive, you yeah. know, and I, I you know, it, it's it's just there's just so much sadness. Right. right. So and, and I just don't think I, I don't believe in jinxing. Mm-hmm. I'm not I'm not jinxing myself. Yeah. By saying this is what we're going to do to win. Right. Right. And and having that mindset, whether it's in a suppression motion it, and it gets me preparing. Yeah. Right. But it, or in a trial. And it can be, you know, it's awful when you think you're going to win or you convince yourself you're going to win and then you lose. But I don't think it's any more awful if you're positive right. before it happens. What I'm hearing from you is, is kind of finding the right orientation for each case. Like, um, you know, like there are no loser cases or like, you know, this, this idea, you know, sometimes there are attorneys that we interact with that will say, oh, that was a, you know, that's, that's a loser case or that's a, that's a, you know, that's a terrible case. I can't, you know, I'm not going to be able to do anything with it. But if you actually look at that case for what it is and then orient yourself according to what the best outcome is for that case, the best outcome for that particular case might be a life sentence that's, you know, 15 to life instead of 50 to life. Yeah. Um, or it might be a, a trial acquittal. It might be, you know, doing a, a particular motion to suppress some evidence. You know, like, so just kind of, I think, orienting your perspective of the case so you're not like starting from this negative point of negativity that's i mean that's what i'm hearing that's from you. that's what I'm i think that's from yeah it. that's i took our discussion i think you did too is not like in any way for us to suggest that anybody do this or adopt our ways sure. but i think there are things that we have found helpful yeah. in our own practices right. and so for me that's been very helpful all right number two for me is uh, mental health days and <laughs> this is like a little bit of a trade secret or a little bit of secret that i Kind of have kept to myself, but what I do, um, if there are there are times where I feel really tired, like I feel really weighted down by the work, I'm kind of feeling overwhelmed by by the the client visits and the you know the courtroom appearances, the discovery requests, reviewing whatever it might be that's going on, and I can just feel it in my shoulders. I could feel it in like my my torso, and uh, if if as long as I'm not inconveniencing anybody else. Uh, meaning like having to get coverage for some for, for a case or or missing a court appearance or anything like that. I will on a Tuesday or a Wednesday or a Thursday just take the day off and not go vacation anywhere, but just like sleep in if I can and maybe go shopping or go to a bookstore or go to an A's game or watch a movie and and just kind of pause for a moment. Um, I call them mental health days um, and they and I don't you know I. Um, I let the, my superiors know and, and, and do it that way, but they are necessary for me to kind of sustain in this work. And I, and only reason, the only way I could get to even taking a mental health day is to be self-aware. So part of it is that self-awareness that I am feeling overwhelmed and kind of feeling heavy and, and feeling a little bit of chaos. 
and recognizing that and saying, you know what, I need a break. I'm going to take a day to recharge, do a little staycation, uh, read a book. Like I said, watch a movie, go on a walk, um, do something just to kind of restore. And, and um, it's been a real positive thing for me. I've incorporated it into my kind of work routine. And I'm, I've gotten to the point where I used to hide it from some of my colleagues. Now I'm actually honest about it. Like meaning, I'll, I used to say I'm taking a vacation day or I'm taking a sick day. But now I'm saying, you know what, I'm feeling burnt out and I need a day to just kind of recover and restore. And that's why I'm off today. If you need me, let me know. That, 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 type, of, that type of thing. Being open with the fact that this is... This is taxing. Yeah, it's yeah. not. It's not a. Ba- it's not a bad thing to acknowledge that the work is tough. Right. Um, right. Um, and and that's actually coupled with one of the things I was going to talk about earlier. But might as well just might as well couple it with this particular point: is vulnerability, is is again having that self awareness and then being able to be willing to voice it to a colleague, whether it to be you, Avi, my friend, or to a superior. Or uh, to the Aider Nation. Or to the Aider Nation right here, where, you know, um, and to say, you know, I, I, need, I need that break. Um, and I think that when, you, when we take that step of vulnerability, we're inviting other colleagues to do the same back, and then you actually end up um, affirming one another and supporting one another. And it's uh, really powerful, as opposed to dealing with these issues in isolation or alone and how actually so much more burdensome that is when you're um, you're having to grapple with these feelings by yourself. Maybe if you say, hey, I'm feeling this, and then a colleague empathizes with you, it's like that much more um, affirming and, and sustaining in the work. Yeah, I, this is similar. We're kind of talking in sim- on like similar track. Right. And I think it makes sense because we have somewhat similar kind of approaches, you know, to thinking about what we're doing and how it's affecting us. So my third is uh, it's kind of like a mindfulness presence practice. So I um, the two components that I would talk about for it are to do one thing at a time. Like I, I cannot multitask. There is a kind of social pressure to do many things at once, you know, to balance all of it and juggle all of it. And I avoid that. Yeah. And so I embrace as my work process, if I have a case to start with the file, or, you know, if I've got a file on my desk to read it, you know, and not be answering or, you know, flipping through three people's cases at, at, at once or, you know, handling four investigation requests on four cases yeah. all at once, just one thing at a time. Uh, and then the other part of it is just breathing, yeah. like just which is similar to your mental health day, mm-hmm. is just stopping to breathe, right? And just thinking about how infrequently we just we just kind of feel this suffocating pressure, yeah, you know. And it's it doesn't have to be really much just to even and especially especially when I'm present with clients and you know they're super stressed and they're no one will listen to them, so maybe they're upset with me. You know, or I'm the only person who they can direct anything towards, yeah. you know, so in understanding where they're coming from, but then even just breathing in that moment yeah. is is really important for the client relationship and just for kind of overall health. So I um, I like that. Yeah, I, it, it's 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 easy. You know, it, it costs nothing. Yeah, it's easier said than done, though, because we often, as you just said, we we don't slow down. We don't slow down to like to take that deep cleansing breath think to, about in trial just to pause yeah you're in trial you're questioning a witness the witness starts saying some stuff that you think is bullshit yeah you know uh you know that the guy said something on tape but now he's claiming he didn't say it or whatever and right. you're frustrated yeah and then you're getting pushback from all these people right you know and things are moving fast and if you just 
breathe in that moment or something doesn't go your way and you think your client is going to be harmed as a result of it mm-hmm. and you're trying to convince people to change their views or whatever, yeah. just just take a moment. A mentor of mine when I got started, Thompson Sharkey, said something like, you can always take a time out. Mm-hmm. You know, and that was about, you know, not making decisions just in the moment yeah. and not making decisions based on like a lack of information, but just like take a time out and figure it out. But my kind of interpretation of that is just take a moment for yourself too. Yeah. Uh, and just breathe. So that's a, that's one for me. Yeah. I want to go back to your um, one thing at a time thing it, and it manifests for me. Uh, sometimes you do feel like this, these cases are big, you know, like they're huge forests and they are these huge animals and you want to get to the the finish line but you know you got to take that those first steps and so what I do oftentimes is just create little checklists just put you know put them one like the most menial tasks and then just start to break that that forest down into little trees or break that animal down into little little kind of molecules and then just start knocking that that list out and it just it's a kind of an anecdote to the feelings of being overwhelmed by these these beasts that we have in front of us. Um, but uh, moving to my uh, next uh, kind of self-care tip is that I use sports and comedy. Sports and comedy, like the tandem of sports and comedy are really crucial to me. And what I mean by that is both of us are parents and so we kind of have double shift duties and not, not um, I'm not overstating what I do as a parent, but we, we do what we do in our day job when we when we go home we got to deal with our kids and then there's and then we you know at the end of the night there's you know then you're once you're done with your kids for a few moments sometimes for me at least my clients come flooding back into my head like what am i what did i do today for them what am i going to be doing for them tomorrow just these feelings of all the all the things that are on the to-do list or these bears that we have to deal with and so i come to a point where i just need something to check out with and usually for me it's uh, Warriors basketball, it's A's baseball, Cal football, uh, watching a game, just kind of getting lost in the game, um, and not feeling guilty about watching the game. Like this is restorative. Like I'm doing this with a with a purpose. Like it's not just heedless entertainment. It's actually it's it's uh, purposeful um, because it's helping me restore. It's helping me kind of mentally take a pause, take a check out. And then mindless comedy. So what I've been doing recently at night is bef- like my brain is going way too fast for me to have restful sleep. And so what I do is I put my headphones on when it's kind of dark and everyone's uh, asleep and I'll watch an episode of The Office or I'll watch an episode of Kirby Enthusiasm or something like that uh, just to kind of let all that stuff go. And so that way I can kind of fall asleep with some serenity um, because if you don't, then our subconscious is just going to keep going and our clients are going to clients and all the work that we have to do and all the heaviness they're going to just going to keep at us and they're going to affect at least they affect my quality of sleep let alone my quantity of sleep and so my tip here is at least for me is using whatever kind of brainless activity there is uh, that someone indulges in and for me it's like I said watching sports watching comedy it um, it helps me kind of check out for a few moments and helps me rest and that's restore. Like, that's like when I watch uh, pro wrestling. Yeah. You know? <laughs> it's like some guy's hitting another person with a chair. Right. They're jumping from the top rope. Right. It's kind of this ridiculous yeah. escape. It's not something I watch all the time, but it's kind of like a nice, like, ah, there's there's this whole world, you know, of 
there's something else going on that's kind of interesting that makes you question things, you know, that makes you just, it's like pausing. Mm-hmm. It, it, just, it is like it's pausing. Like it is like pausing. And it's just, a, it's just a break from kind of the break from the chaos and it, it just things kind of slow down for a few moments which doesn't apply with like cable news right with no. i mean that you know that's the <laughs> i mean that that proves the point right is that it's something kind of mindless and fun right and kind of interesting but not additionally taxing about more uncertainty more things that are crazy or stressful yeah and more i, harm in the I mean world. to that point this is not one of the things that i had originally listed but i am very selective about what I let into my head and what I permit myself to focus on. And so I have made a conscious decision. People will ask me, oh, what do you think about Trump and Comey and the FBI and Sessions and all these things? And I'm like, you know what? And you might even ask me that stuff. And I'm like, I don't know. I haven't followed that, you know, that particular news cycle. I'm not saying that you shouldn't. It's just I'm purposefully, consciously choosing not to because I just don't have the bandwidth to take it on. And, I, and I'm okay with that. I'm coming to terms with being okay with that. My uh, fourth one, I read an article one time. It was just some internet post about like dealing with road rage. Mm-hmm. Or, like, just, it was this example that I, I'm always talking about. So, you know, there's a twig and it's floating down a stream or a river, you know, and it's just floating down the river. And sometimes it bumps into rocks and sometimes it gets caught in some brush and it just keeps floating. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's, it continues to be a twig. <laughs> so this twig in the stream thing is like this, this mantra that I have. Mm. And I rely on it. And you don't, so we're the twig, right? right? We're the twig. And we don't get mad at the rock when we when it's in our way and we bump into it, right? We don't get upset with the brush, you know, for being brush. It's just kind of there, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, one version of this is we worry about our side. Of, so part of it is I'm not ascribing motives. Uh, it's unimportant to me what, you know, what some person's motives are uh, if they are disagreeing with me. Like if a judge is making a ruling or if a DA is making an offer, uh, you know, or if there's something breaking down, it's not very important to me. Oh, well, this is because of some bad thing or this is because of some good thing. Mm-hmm. You know, they, well, they're, they're coming from the right place. I just disagree or whatever. I, I, I don't think that that moves the ball or, you know, I'm mixing metaphors now, but I don't <laughs> think that that, you know, punches us into the end zone. Let me figure out how I don't think that gets us over the net or into the coal or into the cup. Where are we right now? What's going on? Yeah. It can be very calming because you can get wound up and we're in a fight, but you could get wound up and say, well, you know, this person's, this person isn't doing the right thing. This person's doing the wrong thing. And, and you know, they're, they're messing with me in this way or they're messing with me in that way. You know, like when you're driving. You know, if somebody is just trying to let you into their lane or they're not letting you into your lane, you can right. you can really get twisted up about that. Yeah. And it's like you're just driving somewhere. Yeah. Right? And so I feel like by doing that, I stay focused on what matters, which is how I'm advocating for my clients, what their goals are, what the strengths and weaknesses of the case are. Right? But yeah. I... I just keep thinking about being this twig in a stream. It doesn't mean you don't hold people responsible for things. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't mean that you let people off the hook or that you don't you know, question them. So somebody's on the way to stand and they're testifying and you think that their yeah. story doesn't add up. You question them about sure. it and you make your record. You know, or if somebody's disagreeing with you, you advocate for your position. Absolutely. But we just keep doing our work. We just keep floating down the stream. Yeah. And I don't get off course. Staying present. Not getting lost in the inflammatory, kind of irrelevant... Not necessarily irrelevant, but not getting lost in these side battles. When when people say something like Mr. Singh is trying to do this, right? I'm not. I might. 
I'm not now focused on figuring out how to explain what I'm trying or not trying to right. do. Right. I'm going to keep just doing, doing my thing. Doing what you're doing. Yeah. You know, and right. and by the same token, I'm not going to waste any of my breath talking about what somebody's trying to do or not trying to do yeah. or how they're trying to be underhanded in this way or that way. Right. I'm doing my thing. It's right? almost like I'm thinking of you walking down that street or you know floating down that stream. I'm thinking of you like walking down a path and you have these hecklers, people that are like heckling you on the uh, like as you're walking, and you could like stop and start to engage with the hecklers or you could just keep walking down the path and getting to your goal and it like how much more kind of uh present you are if you just kind of tune that stuff out because it's not ultimately it doesn't get you to whatever all those analogies you were just using you know get you to the end of the end doesn't get me through the field goal posts (laughs) so i I like that doesn't get the puck in the net (laughs) doesn't get the cricket ball through the wickets yeah. <laughs> what do you got what where are we now so number we're at number four, four. okay um number four for me is along the lines of what i was just talking about in terms of limiting bandwidth um, um is is the willingness the ability um and the comfort in saying no and what i mean by that is maybe you grew up like this avi i don't know if, if you did but i grew up in a in a home with my mom who i love um, who constantly pushed me and who um, was never satisfied oftentimes with my performance in school if i got an a minus it was it was close to a b you know so i had to push it up if i was you know if i was playing um, sports i should have been doing something else community service wise at school if i you know just kind of this this cycle of what 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 else are you doing what else is going on what else are you contributing um, and I, I'm obviously grateful for that push because it, it pushed me to, to be a high achiever, to go to college, to go to law school, to build a resume that was, um, that was valuable to potential employers and to schools and things like that. Um, but that said, that feeling of discontentment or this idea that I constantly had to be doing something else or multitasking like you were discussing earlier um, starts to be heavy. And what I've learned now is that I will um, give myself credit for being a public defender and nothing more. And what I mean by that is um, I don't have to be doing something else to, in addition to my job as a public defender and whatever family responsibilities I have, um, in order to be contributing to the community or to be playing my whatever role I have in this country's narrative or in my family's narrative. And so this, I, this ability to feel content with what I do as a public defender, that, that it's enough and that's significant. And, and what the corollary to that is the ability and the willingness to say no. So when I get invited or asked to serve on a board of a community organization or to attend a certain event or a fundraiser or to, to participate in some sort of volunteer activity somewhere, me being able to say no and being comfortable with that and and even if I'm using that same exact time to do nothing, even if I'm using that time to go sit on my couch and watch a Warriors game and feeling very comfortable with that choice and feeling that that choice is actually a productive choice for me in my career 
and in my overall contribution to the community. There are certain times where we just kind of put our own pressures. Like right. there's lots of, there's tons of external pressures. Sure. There's all kinds of external pressures. But how do you control kind of those internal pressures yeah. when you need to do certain things? Right. Yeah. And so just being able to say no, being comfortable saying no, and being comfortable sitting on the couch and doing nothing and, and, and realizing that me doing nothing in that moment is actually me being productive and me being uh, restorative so that I can ultimately continue in this beautiful, impactful work of being a public defender, not just for next week, but for 20 years from now when this when these stressors accumulate even more. Um, and so finding productivity in saying no and finding productivity in doing nothing um, has actually been really empowering for me because, like I said, for so long, I felt this internal guilt that if I was sitting or in doing nothing, that I was not being productive um, and that I wasn't contributing in the way that I was uh, able to or that I had the cap- uh, capacity to. Um, so that's a pretty, that's been a pretty significant shift for me that's made my life a lot healthier my uh my fifth is uh i told you about it i think over the weekend so it's this isn't the only thing because there's not enough opportunities to do it but it's an example is it's like some mindless exerting activity like physical exertion yeah and so i got to put in six tons of material in the backyard uh, six two, tons two tons of base rock four and a third tons of decomposed granite uh, in like to this little patio area and so i was wheelbarrowing uh, i had a uh, somebody help me for day two of the job but i still did like a substantial amount of work so i'm even still sore about it like later in the yeah. week but it's just shoveling dirt into a wheelbarrow yeah it's awesome moving the wheelbarrow you know some distance to the yard emptying it using a metal rake like breathing some air that that, getting your hands dirty i didn't have the radio on yeah i mean like the only thing that would have made it better is if i brought my radio out and you know put on uh put on am radio yeah uh like sports radio or something like that but it was it's it's very cathartic um i don't know It, it it's just it some activity you know so something so if it's you know hiking with the kids on the in a backpack yeah the wheelbarrowing i just did it on saturday and i was like and friday night and saturday and it it just reduces my stress levels yeah i totally get it i mean one of the things that i've discovered with my boys is rather than just sitting around the house my favorite thing to do with them for me and for them is to just put them in a stroller and go for a walk you know like just walk for a mile walk to the Starbucks, uh, just to get that fresh air, just to get out and about. It's really cathartic, especially after a long day. Like I find real therapy in those moments. Um, on top of the fact of playing sports, like playing basketball, playing softball, just get, getting that sweat out, it's a, it's really significant. Um, I think it is cathartic. It's it kind of indulges a different part of our brains and our bodies that um, are that are operating when we're in our courthouses and our offices. So I totally I totally agree. I actually cleaned my car a couple Sundays ago, like with the vacuum, and I washed the no, car. I thought your car was pretty clean. Yeah, because I was feeling pretty embarrassed about how dirty it had gotten, but it was really therapeutic. Like I can see why some people find therapy and cleaning because it's just you have this kind of focused activity and you're you're moving you're doing stuff and it's like i said it's kind of indulging a different part of the brain or the body that's otherwise um, being used when we do this work so yeah i'm I'm totally with you on the kind of the kind of not mindless but it's it's like this kind of labor uh labor intensive stuff that um yeah i'm with you what do you got for number five number five is kind of not not a serious one but it's it's a, a you know a sharing with the Ader Nation. I think it's, um, for me, I've found a lot of value in therapy. I went to therapy. Um, I was in juvenile court 
um, when I was on the juvenile court assignment, and I was noticing that I was feeling really heavy there. I think it was for a lot of the reasons that we described, uh, essentially trauma by association, like the, the trust and responsibility of our juvenile clients, all the stuff that they were enduring it kind of kicking up some traumatic dust for me in terms of my own childhood i ultimately during that time started going to therapy once a week and just having a one hour space to talk and to just kind of let it out and to process with somebody uh, was really helpful and it continues to be helpful for me it's been this really uh, significant new chapter in my existence I don't know if it's for everybody. It's been great for me to have that space one hour a week, like I said, to just be able to process things, especially for uh, attorneys or professionals that have families. It's There's not a lot of room where you're just kind of by yourself or, or where you're able to have um, some quiet to be able to process things. And so I found that to be really valuable. And I do think that there is a lot of micro trauma that we experience in this work that needs to be processed. Uh, otherwise, it's just gonna accumulate and accumulate. And if it's not processed out, it's gonna accumulate and then it's gonna potentially have really significant kind of ugly outcomes in terms of alcohol addiction, drug addiction, unhealthy coping mechanisms. We, we remember hearing from this gentleman from the other bar uh, who came and presented our office, Dave Mann, I think his name was, who yeah. was a former defense attorney who went down a spiral of drug addiction and ended up getting disbarred. Um, and how there are these services available to people that are suffering from addiction in the legal community. Um, so I'm mindful of someone like him and his story as I try to kind of be on the, on the, on the front end of that to avoid falling down that path. And I think therapy is a really um, powerful place to, to kind of keep grounded and to uh, kind of outrun these kind of demons that can otherwise catch up with us. Yeah. And uh, you know, the, for the practice of law in California, there's actually specific components for our continuing legal education about substance abuse and now which has actually been expanded, right? right? And it's because in these high-stress professions, some uh, there are bad statistics yeah. that the other bar talked to us about in terms of the, the, when we talk about burnout, it's for our own selves and, and our ability to do what we want to do, but it's also for protecting ourselves and, and protecting our clients yeah. and and you know cuz when we are suffering in some way you know when we're we're not dealing with something that's harming us it doesn't just harm us right and what they got so what the presenter from the other bar was talking about is like if you're if you're not able to do what you're doing but somebody's depending on you to write their will and you don't do it or you don't do it correctly yeah right or you show up drunk to court right or you are coming down from something during trial yeah you know it the the consequences are so severe that we require it in our profession so i think it's really wonderful to do these things to have these self-care practices think about what works for you yeah uh, we support you the aider nation supports you uh and we're, we're so glad that we could share these uh these subjects and so, i'm really curious to if anyone's listening to send us their tips or their methods of self-care whether it be as public defenders or in any other high-stress kind of profession that they're operating with. If you email us at aiderandabetter at gmail.com or uh, provide a comment on uh, the episode posting, wherever you find it, uh, we can then respond or maybe share uh, what other people do. Yep. So we, I think that would be really cool. So why don't we uh, take a quick break and then uh, we will do our things. All set. Sajid, what do you got for your thing this week? So I'm going to go um, back to our first episode. One of the first people that we talked about in our first episode was Joe Mixon. 
And I know it's been a couple of weeks uh, since the draft, uh, the NFL draft, but uh, Joe Mixon, who was the running back from Oklahoma, who had been uh, convicted of assaulting a woman at an Oklahoma bar, was drafted in the second round by the Cincinnati Bengals. And um, I just wanted to shout him out. And my thing is I'm really, I wrote it on Twitter when he was drafted, and I'll say it again now, I'm really uh, grateful for a team like the Cincinnati Bengals, believing in redemption and believing in this idea that we're more than just our worst moments in time. And so I just wanted to kind of, like I said, harken back to that first episode and kind of give some closure to that story and and, uh, with Joe Mixon getting drafted. And hopefully um, he will be a a shining light of redemption as he enters his NFL career. And I'm really hoping for the best for him and um, anyone else that's been through the criminal justice system and is hoping to get another shot, whether it be as a football player or in any other walk of life that they're operating within. So that's my thing. My thing is about an article in the Players Tribune uh, by Dion Waiters. Dion Waiters is a shooting guard. Uh, he's a guard in the NBA. He's a shooting guard. He's a shoot. He's a shooter. He's shooter, a shooter, shooter, shoot. All right, shooter, shoot. And Dion Waiters is a shooting guard. So he's his article is in the Players Tribune. He started writing for them. Uh, so there's a few articles, but one of the articles is called "The NBA is Lucky I'm Home Doing Damn Articles," <laughs> and he he just talks about apparently. So in the article, he talks about his background, being from Philadelphia, being from a really tough, dangerous part, you know, from a really tough, dangerous community uh, where he experienced tons of trauma. He talks about a friend, you know, one of his best friends who he played basketball with being killed when he was young. And he talks about kind of dealing with all of that stress. And, and I just wanted to highlight one one excerpt from the article because it, it, you know you're thinking about what do we do what do, what do other people do and and you know we're saying it's not exclusive to public defense it obviously isn't no. right and so here's what Dion Waiters uh, said he he was talking about Riley and this is a brief ex- excerpt I told Pat about some of the shit I've seen and some of the people I've lost by the time I was 12 years old both my mom and dad got shot I had brothers cousins uncles and friends get murdered too many to count for real. You know, the crazy thing about death and violence is you get numb to it. You really do. So because of everything I'd seen and lost, I decided from a young age, you know what? I'm just going to fucking ball out. And it's like, like a completely understandable, like all of this horror. Yeah. And so, you know, there are many responses to that. You know, there are responses about giving up. There are responses about trying different things. There are you know, there's all kinds of ways you could react. And that reaction is such a an amazing reaction. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna play basketball and I'm just gonna be the best. Yeah. And he ev- everybody who I've talked to who's read this article is, has done a one eighty oh, yeah. on their on, view of on, Dion Waiters. On Waiters Island. Yeah, like he, you know, he was kind of a o- overconfident, you know, taking shots, demanding the ball from players who were much better than him. Well you know, Kevin Kevin Durant said that Dion Waiters thought he was the best player on the team on a team that had Kevin Durant and Russell Westbrook. Yeah, and, and so, you know, you, it's just he, he, uh, he let us in. Yeah, I, lo- uh, I loved it. And so uh, I hope you uh, will consider reading that article. It's a, it's a quick read. So anyway, uh, thank you so much for listening to Aider and Better, and we will talk to you next time. Talk soon. Raindrop, drop top, drop top, smoking, no cook in the hot box. Raindrop, drop top, drop top, smoking, no cook in the hot box. Raindrop, drop top, drop top, smoking, no cook in the hot box. Raindrop, drop top, drop top, smoking, no